0: Hello there, welcome along for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. This is episode 101. If you haven't already, do consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon to help us reach another 100 episodes. Becoming a member gets you various exclusive extras. They include transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast members also get access to an exclusive discount deal a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category IB Taurus which is part of Bloomsbury Publishing has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series including both academic and general interest titles and Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally members also receive an archive of two 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership amounts to no more than $6 per month. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's crack on with our latest episode. In it we're here from Soner Chaaptai. He's the director of the Turkish Research Programme at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's also a prolific author, writing three books on contemporary Turkish politics and foreign policy since 2014. The latest of those is Erdogan's Empire, Turkey and the Politics of the Middle East, which has just been published by Bloomsbury, so it's available at that 35% discount if you sign up as a Turkey Book Talk member. We had this conversation two days before Turkey agreed to a ceasefire, eight days after launch its military operation into Northeastern Syria but I believe the issues that we discuss are still quite germane. I started by asking Sonia Chaptai whether he was surprised that the operation was launched when it was on 9th of October shortly after a phone call between Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Donald Trump.
1: I was not surprised at all by Turkey's incursion. To me, it was not a question of if but when Turkey would act against Kurdish People's Protection Units. That is an offshoot of another Kurdish group known as Kurdistan Workers' Party, uh, which is also known as PKK. The PKK is a terror-designated entity by Turkey, but also United States and other NATO members. And the YPG is its close ally offshoot. And uh, actually, according to U.S. government officials, uh, the YPG is considered the Syrian wing of the PKK. Having said this, I think it's important to note that, starting with the rise of the so-called Islamic State in Syria, the United States, which did not want to put boots on the ground, partnered with the YPG to combat ISIS. Turkey never accepted this policy, but grudgingly agreed to it, so long as it helped defeat ISIS. Following the defeat of ISIS in 2017, Turkey started to warn the United States to end what American officials had told Turkish officials would be a tactical, temporary, and transactional relationship, and when. Uh, U.S. did not walk away from that relationship fast enough. Uh, Turkey decided to act. So I, I was not surprised by this operation. I think a lot of analysts agreed it was coming. Of course, it was an operation in which President Erdogan masterfully uh, leverage Turkey, United States and Russia against each other, as well as uh, getting uh, what he wanted in Syria, together with the fact that he also aligned a significant chunk of the Turkish public behind his objective. This is a study, in my view, in Erdogan's foreign policy, where he sees Turkey as neither part of the East, uh, nor part of the North, that is Russia, nor part of the West, that's US and NATO, uh, working with all at the same time, leveraging all of those actors against each others to get uh, what it wants and also aligning all of that with his domestic aim of uh, power consolidation and keeping his base strong.
0: Now this interview will be published in a week, so I'm a little bit worried actually that um, uh, by that point things are going to be completely out of date because things are moving so fast (laughs) on the ground.
1: That's true. Absolutely. It's in fact evolving as we speak. Uh, It's still not clear to what extent the Russians and Assad regime will take over eastern Syria. But it seems fair to say at this stage that Erdogan has achieved two goals with his incursion into Syria. He has ruptured the US relationship with YPG, with US forces pulling out of uh, Syria, at least those that are embedded with the YPG are pulling out. And also Erdogan has gained one more goal. He has forced uh, the Kurdish YPG and its political entity under the control of Assad regime. I think the fear for Erdogan and broader Turkish foreign policy elites in Ankara was that uh, this Kurdish group uh, that had established ties, tactical as they might be, with the United States was on the cusp of gaining international recognition de facto, and the Turkish operation not only crushes the YPG's political entity, but also pushes it under Assad government control. And so I think that's a quite a significant short-term political gain for Erdogan, regardless of events continue to unfold.
0: Now, one thing a lot of uh, folks suggested is that once Turkey had sort of achieved its goal of eradicating the YPG or completely marginalising it, Turkey will end up coming to terms, in a sense, with Assad striking some kind of deal with the Assad regime, probably via Russia. Uh, but now, at least in recent days, it looks like the YPG has actually come to an agreement with some of some sort with Damascus uh, in a bid to sort of limit the Turkish incursion. Obviously, things are very fluid at the moment. But I mean, how do you see all this playing out, this game of chess? Do you think there's a chance of Turkey sitting around the table ultimately with Assad some months down the line?
1: Look, beyond the the current image of YPG as the forces that have helped defeat ISIS, lies a fact that this Kurdish group YPG and its mother organization PKK have deep historic ties with both the Russian state and the Assad regime in Syria. To go back to Cold War history, uh, the PKK, of which the YPG is an offshoot, was established with Soviet backing during the Cold War in Syrian-occupied Lebanese Bekaa Valley. That has a lot to do with Cold War politics. Turkish-Russian or Turkish-Soviet border, rather, in the Cold War was the soft belly of the Soviet Union. With the exception of Norway's border with Soviet-Russia, a short border north of the Arctic Circle, the Turkish-Soviet border was the only contact uh, in terms of land borders between Union and the NATO member country. The Russians considered Turkey, their border with Turkey as the soft belly of the Soviet empire. It was therefore not a surprise that they gave support to the PKK oftentimes people see the PKK as a domestic issue and cannot understand why most of Turkey's citizens consider it such a mortal threat. That is because the PKK has often been or has often acted as a foreign policy threat as it did in the Cold War when uh, it was supported by the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And then with the end of the Cold War, the Syrian regime that already supported the PKK with the Soviets uh, rose up in prominence and became its main international backer. And the PKK lost many attacks into Turkey across the border from Syria at that time. So there's a history of the Assad regime using the PKK. That policy ended in the last decade when the Assad regime tried to court Erdogan. And also because of common Turkish-Syrian objections to the Iraq war, uh, there were some elements of cooperation uh, regionally. But with the start of the uprising in Syria, Assad reintroduced the PKK, allowing the PKK Syrian franchise YPG to go act again. It was intentional that Assad vacated Kurdish majority areas of northern Syria, allowing the YPG to fill in the vacuum just at the time when Turkey started to allow radicals to cross into Syria to fight Assad regime. I see Assad's redeployment of PKK and YPG against Turkey as a direct result of Turkey's involvement in the war in Syria against him. And I would say it has worked. It worked to distract Turkey. It worked to undermine Turkey's stability. Uh, The PKK carried out a large number of terror attacks in Turkey as recently as 2016, including suicide bombers, in some of which we know the attackers came from YPG, from Syria. So this has clearly uh, shocked Turkey. Turkey, but also undermined the country's policy. Erdogan's goal in Syria was to oust Assad. His goal in Syria today is to undermine the YPG. So I think Assad won in this chess game. What he will do next, now that he has worked his chess game with the Russians and with Putin, in which Turkey's incursion has forced YPG back under Assad regime rule, Assad is probably going to offer Turkey a grand bargain. And the grand bargain will be, accept my borders, accept me as Syria's sovereign leader once again, and I will make sure that the YPG cannot put its head up. And I think we will probably see the YPG go quiet for the short term until Turkey and Syria reestablish ties. But I would not be surprised if we heard of the YPG and the PKK again in two to three, three to five years. This is a permanent dynamic of Turkish-Syrian ties going back to the 1970s and the Cold War that the Assad regime has always deployed YPG and PKK family against Turkey when it felt that it could bully Turkey. Right now, it's not in a position to do that. Right now, Assad regime is interested in having Turkey recognize it and end the war. But once that happens, it won't be uh, too late before we hear about, you know, PKK-YPG activities in Syria and how this group is linked to the Assad regime. I think history is really important understanding Turkey's foreign policy. And in this regard, Cold War history, Turkish-Russian ties, Turkish-Syrian ties, both unfriendly and hostile, and how the PKK played a role in both of these relationships, allowing both both Moscow and Damascus to undermine Turkey for nearly four decades is a very important point to make, as I explain in my book, Erdogan's Empire, Turkey and Politics of the Middle East.
0: That almost describes a kind of uh, return to this old status quo in a way. But I just wonder, you know, there's been eight years of Syrian civil war and things have changed so radically on the ground. And Turkey has asserted itself over control of thousands of Syrian rebels who will, I think it's fair to say, probably have other ideas than acquiescing to a grand Turkish Syrian bargain. I mean, how realistic do you think it will be, you know, that that can actually happen and that these groups can be mined marginalised in some way or just completely abandoned by Turkey you know they are ultimately it's leverage really now and it's quite conceivable that further down the road it's going to use that leverage when it comes to some kind of grand bargain that we're talking about here
1: Yeah, I would say the biggest challenge for Turkey going forward is going to be Idlib. This is the last rebel-held province in Syria. It has two to three million civilians, embedded in which, uh, according to people, tens of thousands of jihadists. Uh, We know that Assad regime wants to consolidate his power across all of Syria. So does Russia. So an assault on this area by the regime and Russia would almost automatically trigger a new flow of refugees into Turkey, embedded among which would be a number of jihadists, a big threat to Turkey, both in security realm, but also economically and demographically. Uh, Remember that although Turkey had an open-door policy towards Syrian refugees since 2012, lately sentiments are rising in the country against the refugees, I think largely driven because of economic downturn with many Turkish citizens blaming the Syrians for, quote-unquote, stealing jobs and pushing rents up. And there's also some cultural resentment towards refugees building up, especially among middle-class secular Turks who resent the conservative religious values of the refugees coming in. A combination of these factors are driving a massive resentment against the refugees. As I've written in my previous book, New Sultan, Turkey is very divided between uh, two camps that oppose Erdogan and that adore Erdogan. There are very few issues, though, that unite Turkey's citizenry. I would say the PKK tops the list, and resentment against Syrian refugees is a close second. So an Assad regime onslaught against Idlib that should send into Turkey millions of refugees, a country that already hosts nearly four million Syrian refugees, would, I think, break Turkey's ability to host these refugees and to maintain its open-door policy there are two ways for Erdogan to move forward at this stage. One is to let refugees flow into Europe. Uh, That could trigger a refugee crisis in Europe on par with the crisis we saw in 2015, and would definitely aid the rise of far-right parties across the continent. He could also prevent these refugees from coming in. That would only mean a massive humanitarian disaster, if not genocide, at Turkey's doorsteps. So Turkey really does not have any good choices, and it will be premature to say the war in Syria is over. I think Turkey has achieved some of its objectives. It has broken the tactical relationship between U.S. and YPG that many people in Ankara thought and feared was evolving to become a permanent and strategic one. It has pushed YPG under Assad control, but the threat of a YPG-PKK comeback under Assad regime control still exists in the midterm. And in the short term, of course, the big risk for Turkey is what to do about Idlib.
0: You've written uh, in a number of your books and articles, including this latest one, that Turkey should return, ultimately, uh, to talks with the PKK to find a peaceful, lasting solution to this uh, very long-running problem. But you've also repeatedly made the case that this latest operation in Syria is justified and the right thing to do from a national security perspective. And it seems like these two positions are at odds with each other, uh, to put it mildly. Don't you think that there's a big contradiction there to support both positions?
1: Let me explain. Uh, so I think we need to understand the relationship between uh, the YPG and PKK uh, without using too many acronyms. The first is the Syrian uh, wing of the PKK, which is the bigger family uh, under which a, lar- a number of Kurdish nationalist organizations that have been fighting Turkey fall. In this relationship between YPG and PKK, it was always the successes of the PKK that animated its spin-off organizations, including its Syrian franchise, the YPG. I think that dynamic was inverted in 2014 and 15 when the YPG put up a defense of Kobane, an impressive defense with U.S. assistance in which it pushed back against ISIS. It then took over uh, this town and other towns along Syria's border with Turkey where it declared autonomy that became de facto recognized by many countries, and uh, the YPG also took over a third of Syria's territory, half of its oil deposits. I think that inverted the YPG-PKK relationship. It uh, went from uh, the PKK animating the YPG to the YPG now animating the PKK. Accordingly, the PKK broke its talks with Turkey, which I supported, and moved forward to import the quote-unquote Kobani model into Turkey. What is the Kobani model? Take over towns, declare autonomy, have international actors recognize you de facto. The PKK, animated by the success of the Syrian daughter YPG, broke these talks, launched offensives in Turkish cities to capture those cities. I think it was uh, unrealistic for the PKK to anticipate or hope that it could defeat NATO's second largest military. The PKK's uh, offensive to take Turkish cities uh, ended in a disaster. It also meant the end of peace talks. The point I'd like to make in terms of why I think Turkey's operation for Syria helps bring us back to peace talks is because the PKK. PKK feels and thinks that its fortunes in Syria are soaring because of the YPG's successes until recently and did not want to be in peace talks with Turkey under the previous terms. I think uh, that the reason why the talks broke in the first place suggests to us that what happens in Syria does not stay in Syria, meaning uh, the success of YPG not only helped to feed ISIS, but also animated the PKK, which then broke up peace talks with Turkey. And I would say at this stage, the only way the PKK will come back to peace Talks if the YPG is built down in Syria. That is what is happening now in front of our eyes. The YPG no more controls territory on its own. It cannot claim to control Iraq's, uh, Syria's oil fields, uh, nor is it a partner, tactical as it might be, of the United States. So perhaps this actually provides for the suitable conditions in which the YPG no more animates the PKK. The PKK no more thinks that it doesn't need to be in peace talks with Turkey because it controls a third of Syria and has ties with the United States and can rely on those ties. And so losing these assets, I think the PKK should now be in a position to come back to peace talks to Turkey, as was the case before 2014 and 15, when the Syria dynamics completely changed the relationship between PKK and its Syrian franchise, the YPG.
0: Now, this operation has drawn almost almost universal condemnation uh, in the West. And there's talk about harsh uh, hulk's on arms sales to Turkey among many uh, EU member countries. And uh, all this, of course, comes on top of many, many existing problems in Turkey's relations uh, with uh, Western countries that have built up in recent years. does seem like an extraordinary focus is being put on this operation. I mean, do you think that this operation will lead to a kind of final, ultimate rupture between anchor in the west or do you think it will be something that blows over or do you think that this will lead to just uh, perhaps a, a fundamental recalibration if not an enormous rupture?
1: No, I actually, I think that the operation speaks in volumes as to the future of Turkish foreign policy under President Erdogan. In my new book, Erdogan's Empire, I not only look at Turkey's foreign policy under Erdogan in the last uh, two decades, but I also look at paths moving forward. And I argue that Erdogan is quite different than Turkish leaders that preceded him. Uh, Turkey's 20th century leaders, almost without exception, allied with the West while trying to revive Turkey's greatness. Erdogan, who also wants to revive Turkey's greatness, doesn't have the same interest of simply folding Turkey under the West while waiting for Turkey's greatness to return. He wants it to happen on his own clock, and he has no patience for this greatness to come back in the future. He wants to see it happen now. For the most part, I think Erdogan has failed. I would give his foreign policy, I would say A for effort. Uh, Yes, he has made strides in building Turkey influence in the Western Balkans and East and West Africa, but his foreign policy that was supposed to make Turkey a star power nation in the Middle East has not produced results results. Turkey is now completely isolated in the Middle East. We saw it most recently in Ankara's offensive into northern Syria. Only Qatar came out to support Turkey's incursion. Turkey has no friends in the Middle East. That's not what Erdogan promised when he launched his Middle East initiative. He suggested at that time that Turkey would have all friends in the Middle East. That's not the case. At the same time, Turkey cannot rely on its traditional parties in the West either. Another departure, another point of difference between Erdogan and his predecessors. Turkey's 20th century politicians, especially starting in the after method of World War I, relied on the West, and the West relied on Turkey, and this alliance was quite solid. Turkey with NATO, Turkey with the United States. Uh, That is no more the case. Turkey cannot rely on unconditional support of its allies in the West, including the United States. That, however, doesn't mean that Erdogan's foreign policy has completely collapsed. One of the scenarios I highlight in my book, Erdogan's Empire, is one by which Turkey continues to leverage uh, these blocks that it faces, meaning Russia to the north, U.S. and NATO to the west, Iran to the east, and the Arab Middle East to the south. It continues to leverage these blocks against each other. And I would say what happened in Syria in the last uh, weeks is exactly that. Erdogan uh, leveraged Turkish position there with the Americans and with the Russians to get what he wanted. Uh, In 2018, uh, he complained to the Russians regarding their protection of YPG's Afrin enclave to get a green light from Putin to go in and take that enclave from the YPG. And most recently, he has used the same approach with President Trump, basically saying, look, the Russians have let me go in and take Afrin. If you're my true friends, then you would let me go in and take towns east of Euphrates from YPG control. Uh, This is exactly what Trump allowed Erdogan to do. So I think Erdogan has successfully leveraged United States and Russia in Syria to get what he wants. Uh, That means, of course, more territory and also a say in Syria's future. I should also caveat myself, I argue in Erdogan's empire that Turkey's ability to leverage US and Russia and other players against each other will be there so long as Turkey's economy is thriving. Turkey is a resource poor country. It needs to grow at 4% for its citizens to feel that they're getting wealthier. It needs to import $30 billion worth of natural gas and oil a year. So it's clearly not a country that can continue in the foreign policy realm should its economy face a serious downturn because it would need to be bailed out and there are very few actors and countries that can bail Turkey out. So, of course, that's still a question of whether Turkey's economic health is in good shape. If it is, then I think Erdogan will continue to hedge these blocks that surround Turkey against each other, as he has been doing in Afrin and most recently in northern Syria. If not, if the economy tanks, which we don't want to see, I think then, of course, it's fair to uh, expect that Turkey will be forced to fold under one of these blocks. And my candidate in this regard would be Russia. That would be an historic shift because Turkish-Russian Relations uh, for centuries were marked by hostility with Russia bullying Turkey. Although Russia's policy towards Turkey has shifted since the coup of 2016, Russia went from being the nemesis that bullies Turkey to the nemesis that courts Turkey. Uh, I think Putin, of course, would love to see Turkey fall under uh, Russian control. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but it's definitely one of the plausible, if less plausible, scenarios out there in terms of the future of Turkish foreign policy.
0: One of the things you talk about in the book, and I see you've written about elsewhere too, are these uh, economic ties that keep Turkey wedded to the West, essentially. Uh, Basically, the Turkish economy is almost entirely reliant on outside funding to stay afloat, and the vast majority of that funding has come from the West. There are alternatives, but the volume of funds that have to flow in means that there's only one destination for that, and that is the West. You argue that this reality means that there can be no real complete rupture between Turkey and its Western partners. I mean, just make that case for us.
1: Absolutely. I think that despite Erdogan's efforts to uh, recalibrate Turkey's foreign policy and notwithstanding his conviction that Turkey does not belong to the West culturally or politically, there is a simple fact. Turkey relies on the West financially and needs the West financially. Despite Erdogan's efforts to recalibrate Turkey's foreign policy, in fact, more foreign direct investment comes to Turkey from Europe and the broader West today than it did before Erdogan. And while Erdogan has diversified Turkey's trade partners, Europe still dominates, or rather members of the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, still dominate in Turkey's foreign trade. And uh, the diversification has not taken place at the benefit of Russia or China, but rather at the benefit of Africa and Central Asia and Latin America. So Turkey has diversified but not become a bigger trading partner to Russia and China and it still relies for the most part for nearly 80% of foreign direct investment in terms of inflows on Europe. I have coined a new term in this book to summarize this economic and financial relationship Turkey has with the West and I call it Turkey's ties to strategic West. What is strategic West? It's not the cultural or political West Turkey's 20th century leaders aspired that Turkey would join. It is rather the collective membership of NATO and OSCD that Erdogan relies on financially for FDI flows and trade, and also in the security realm. Uh, Regardless of how this operation in Syria moves forward, uh, there's one thing very clear. Erdogan values Turkey's membership in NATO. Uh, That is because he knows that if Turkey is not a member of NATO, it will have to fall under its historic uh, nemesis, Russia.
0: Now you've written a number of books in recent years the two most recent Erdogan's Empire this latest one and the new Sultan uh, have focused very closely on Erdogan himself as the kind of main driving force behind Turkish policy do you think that's always the right approach I mean Erdogan is obviously very important and it's impossible to consider contemporary Turkey really without him but there are other deeper forces at play as well which perhaps he doesn't have much control over essentially so just ruminate a bit about on that Erdogan as being this kind of very important symbolic figure but also some other sort of deeper social ideological structures that are underpinning his rule.
1: In terms of foreign policy, one of the the themes I enjoyed writing in my new book was the role of historical antibodies, meaning how Turks view their neighbours, but also and more importantly how Turkey's neighbours view Turkey historically and how this has shaped, helped, hindered and blocked erdogan's foreign policy initiatives erdogan uh with his at the time foreign minister later prime minister ahmed Davutoglu, launched quite an ambitious set of power and foreign policy initiatives in the middle east in the beginning at the beginning of this decade this followed nearly a decade of solid economic growth which led erdogan and to conclude that turkey had become a soft power nation and they also thought that turkey did not need to rely on the west anymore it could break with the u.s and its european uh, allies as need be and and move forward to become a standalone nation that could shape the outcome of events in the Middle East on its own. That has really not been the case. I use a scene from Erdogan swearing the ceremony on July 9, 2018 to e- exemplify this conclusion or to summarize this conclusion. This is a, quite an important date in Erdogan's uh, career. Uh, you know, it, he has passed amendments to the Turkey's constitution in 2017, which have expanded his executive power significantly. That made him executive-style president, as a result of which he is now head of state, head of government, head of ruling party, head of the police, which is a national force, head of military as a commander. So, he has now accumulated more power than has been the case in Turkey's history ever since Turkey became a multi party democracy in 1950. And I argue that this is perhaps Erdogan, that is the most powerful Turkish leader to emerge since Ataturk established modern Turkey out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire in 1923. So, June 9, 2018 is uh, uh, when these powers fully kick in. Erdogan finally swears in to take office as executive style president. Who is there to wish Erdogan well and say, well done, great job? not a single head of state from an EU or NATO member. That's quite significant. Exception is Bulgaria, with which Turkey has special ties, uh, given the presence of a large Turkish and Muslim community there. With the exception of that, not a single head of state from an EU or NATO member country is there to congratulate Erdogan at the height of his political career. But ironically, neither do we see heads of state from Iran, Russia, or China. So it's not as if Turkey has left the West and become best friends with Russia, Iran, or China. They're not there either. More ironically, there is not a single head of state or monarch from the Middle East with the exception of Emir of Qatar. So Turkey is completely isolated in the Middle East, uh, cannot rely on its traditional friends in the West, and is not friends with Russia, Iran, or China at all. And I think this completely leaves it alone in my view, in attendance on June 9th, 2018, are heads of state from Western Balkans, East and West Africa, and Central Asia. That is where I give Erdogan credit for building influence, nearly two dozen states, some of which have come forward publicly supporting Turkey's incursion to Syria, Somalia, Qatar, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, and Bulgaria, uh, being some of these countries. So he hasn't completely, I think the results are mixed. Uh, of course, he has built influence, but he hasn't built influence where he thought he would in the Middle East, and he can't rely on powers of in the West, and he also cannot rely on Russia or Iran as friends. What does that tell us about the role of historical antibodies? I think Erdogan was mistaken to think that Turkey's engagement in the Arab uprisings to support Muslim Brotherhood-related parties or rebels against the Assad regime would be welcomed by broad constituencies across the board. That has not been the case. I think Arabs view Turks not very differently than do Greeks and Serbs as former colonial overlords, and even the most pro-Erdogan Arab does not want Erdogan to come in to tell them what to do And I think that went missing to both Erdogan and Davut as they went into Arab majority countries in the Middle East to shape the outcome of events there. And that has been a major blunder. Secondly, in addition to ignoring the role of historical antibodies, a second factor that explains the fall of Erdogan Dotolu foreign policy in the Middle East is the singular support these leaders have provided to the Muslim Brotherhood during and after the Arab uprisings. In this regard, I think Erdogan and Dotolu were not perhaps crafty policymakers; almost the opposite of Iranians. Iranians usually bet on all political parties or actors in a country, so they always win because they have put money behind all horses. In in this political horse race. That's not what Erdogan and Deutola did. Uh, to use a metaphor, they put all of Turkey's money behind one horse, that is the horse of Muslim Brotherhood, and they were going to win big if the Brotherhood had won in Egypt and elsewhere, but they lost everything because the Brotherhood lost across the uh, region, and that not only cost Turkey power, but also created new adversaries. Uh, many of the countries in the Middle East, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, abhor the Brotherhood, and they therefore Erdogan and Erdogan's policies reg- uh, regionally. I would say Erdogan's policies that were supposed to make Turks and Arabs friends have actually created new prejudices and new hostilities between Turks and Arabs. As uh, we have seen recently, it was countries such as UAE that came up forefront and criticized Turkey's incursion to Syria more quickly and harshly than any other country did. So clearly, this has not been a, a great report card for Erdogan in the Middle East in terms of his efforts to make Turkey a great country.
0: Now, domestically, uh, looking forward, some opposition voices and people outside Turkey really have suggested that this latest operation into Syria is aimed primarily at boosting President Erdogan's flagging popularity. I mean, what do you make of that argument? And do you think that this operation will have a long lasting effect on his uh, approval ratings?
1: I would say that the operation probably will give Erdogan a minor boost uh, for the time being. That's because it will be seen as a success as Turkey undermining its mortal enemy and uh, a franchise of that mortal enemy in Syria. But I don't think that will be long lasting. Number one, uh, Turkey is quite uh, divided and polarized. Number two, the economy in Turkey is not doing well. And I would say while analysts have discussed in detail why Erdogan's party lost recent uh, local elections to opposition candidate Imamoglu in Istanbul and the number of other Turkish uh, cities, large ones, I would say the main reason why Erdogan's party lost is because the economy has not been doing well. So unless the economy recovers, I don't think the boost Erdogan will get from the Syrian incursion will be permanent or quite significant.
0: And turning our attention to the opposition, do you see any scenario in which an opposition figure can challenge Erdogan in the next election, whether that be in 2023 as scheduled or earlier, as many suspect uh, may happen?
1: I think it will be premature. Talk about 2023. I feel that uh, one of the reasons why I love studying Turkey is because, uh, and I have uh, written on Turkey and studied, analyzed it for over uh, 25 years. I believe that if countries could be vegetables, Turkey would be an onion. It never has a core. You always have to peel it up just as you think you got to the core of the argument. It's not there. Uh, having said this, uh, you should also add that, you know, years in Turkish political context are sometimes as eventful as the centuries are for some other countries. So it will be extremely difficult, I think, for me to hypothesize on elections uh, that should be taking place in four years. But the good news of the outcome of Islam elections is that it shows to us, t- Turkey remains a democracy. It is a democracy with an autocratic leader on top, but it's a democracy and that's what matters. Elections still matter. A lot of people uh, make comparisons of Turkey to China and Turkey to Russia. I think these are unfortunate. Uh, I can't see a scenario under which the Chinese Communist Party loses Beijing to the opposition or Putin loses Moscow to his opposition. That has happened in Turkey. It will happen again. So I think Istanbul shows us a few things one is democratic culture remains resilient second of course is that the opposition has for the first time united which is quite significant uh, for a long time I argued that Erdogan was blessed with an uh, ineffective opposition in which the distance between opposition groups was often wider uh, than the gap between opposition groups and Erdogan and that's why opposition groups could not unite you had Turkish nationalists and Kurdish nationalists and they could not vote for each other uh, that changed uh, because of Erdogan his switch to presidential system that fully kicked into place in 2018 also requires, something Erdoğan did not foresee, a two-way race. Someone has to get 50% of the vote to become president. That was never the case in Turkey before, in case of parliamentary democracy, because then you have seven parties running and parties with as little as a third of popular support could form government because of the way votes for proportion in the parliament and seats were allocated. Erdoğan changed that dynamic, erased it with his switch to presidential system. That was supposed to be good for him. That is actually, in my view, turned out to be not so good for him because it forces opposition to unite. The opposition first united in 2018. They held their nose tried to come together. It didn't work out. Erdogan still won. And then they tried to do it again this year in Istanbul. This time it worked. Uh, The opposition coalesced and they filled it a joint candidate. I would say number one reason Erdogan lost Istanbul is because of the economy. Number two is because the opposition united. The question now is, can Erdogan splinter the opposition with the Syria operation? Uh, We'll have to wait and see.
0: That was Soner time many thanks to him. That was episode number 101 of Turkey Book Talk. If you're a fan, you can join as a member on Patreon to support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books, published by I.B. Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, covering Turkish history and politics, literature, and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever podcast platform you use follow via twitter or like the facebook page and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks once again thank you very much for listening